suppose you want to say, I want to get my leads through SEO. That assumes people are searching for what you do. Your audience really is your sales department at the end of the day. And if you don't have a feel for what they're going through, you're not going to be helpful. It's tough, especially with data in that you never know what you're missing. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Marketing Podcast. Shaheen Khan here with Doug Garnett. How are you? So we thought today we start with something that I found pretty funny, and that is a couple episodes ago, we talked about customer testimonials, and then a thread ensued that talked about how those can be really pretty funny. So set us up, please. Well, the thread came back, you know, we were talking about law firms in that same episode. So a lawyer was listening to the episode. And this lawyer is not just any lawyer, you know, they're not doing ambulance chasing and like they're a litigator, which means they deal with courtroom situations. So the litigator came back and said, you know, that's really interesting, but I don't think I'm going to be able to get testimonials because none of my people that I represent want me uh, to talk about them. And laughed about, uh, you know, the type of testimonial you'll get for litigation, which is, well, without Bob, I'd be in jail. Or, uh, you know, um, it's very effective testimonial if you could get it (laughs) (laughs) or when i got sued for malpractice you know sally was able to get me off Uh, you know yeah there are times when testimonials may not be a good idea my fraudulent scheme would have done yeah so so with that uh, we thought today we're going to talk about lead generation Let me set it up with a thing that many of us who have LinkedIn accounts uh, encounter daily, which is I cannot believe how many appeals I get from people who promise to get me leads. I mean, it just is ridiculous. The noise level of all these appeals, which are, we'll drive your new business. You know, we can get leads for your business. And of course, they don't really know anything about my business at this point in time, because at this point, I, I don't need leads. But God, it's such an industry. Uh, and I, I'm kind of mystified by how it has become industrialized. And I don't know what contributed to that and why it has come out that way. I also don't hear success stories anywhere from people who are saying, you know, wow, this lead generation project was really great and it really helped us out. And in fact, I was sent down this path by a a tweet by Jake Sanders, who's a kind of funny guy who lives in uh, Colorado and is a musician as well. And he asked, what if it was that lead generation killed the Neanderthals? (laughs) And um, I think there's actually a little possibility there. So when I get requests like this a lot through LinkedIn, and they're missing the mark, I wonder just how effective their lead generation scheme is that they are badgering me and I'm not a prospect. Yeah. So really the immediate reaction I have is that your targeting really is flawed. But what I don't know is how much of that actually works. Is it that 
it actually works more often than not, and I'm just an outlier? I don't know. You know, there is one thread I think is true that has happened, especially with the growth of the internet. I've often wondered, for example, how much Google revenue comes from small businesses that were never able to spend anything on on, uh, messaging and communication in the past. And Google gives them such a cheap way in, a low price way in, that all of a sudden Bob's local business spends 2000 this year and 4000 next year and 10000 the year after and actually doesn't get anything for it. But there is a way to which you feel good because you're doing something, right? This is where the funnel comes in. Because if you're a small business and just opened up shop or you're sitting downtown somewhere, chances are your biggest issue is awareness. And if you can do a little bit of SEO, even without really getting too sophisticated about it, you probably will get more awareness and maybe that is a success for you. But then when you talk about more complex sales, where top of the funnel is always an issue, agreed. And, you know, so now you have to see, am I getting, and, you know, probably the, I would say probably one of the more effective ways of getting general awareness is just PR, but it doesn't really qualify. You get awareness across a broad spectrum without too much qualification. So the next level of qualification may very well be SEO sort of a thing, but then the quantity of people that it touches may not be sufficient. So now you have to stack rank all these marketing vehicles according to cost per lead and go with the lowest cost, but then the lowest cost will give you only two leads. And if you want the next two, you have to pay like $10 per lead. And then the next five will be higher and higher and maybe that's like the way you have to do it to say, okay, if I need 100 leads, these are my marketing vehicles. This is the cost per lead. And at the end, my average cost per lead is this. I think the other thing that SEO assumes is if suppose you want to say, I want to get my leads through SEO, that assumes people are searching for what you do in a coherent way. And that's not always true. Well, it's a lamppost. You're going to say, I'm going to look on their dad lamppost and take my chances. That's the key is maybe they aren't really looking for what you do. Maybe you have to build awareness of it. You know, we have in the advertising world, all these ads for pharmaceuticals that bring up things that most of us didn't know were serious issues. And by promoting them and telling people that these are serious issues, they expand their business because they build awareness of the problem that they solve. And if you have something like that, it's tricky because people aren't sitting around saying, hey, I'm going to go look for a drug to treat this. They just are going to their doctor to see what the doctor has to say. You know, that's so it doesn't always work so well. So I think SEO has a problem in that I think that's tricky with it. You've got to be assuming that people are going to are searching. You also, if you're going to pay for SEO, there has to be a reason to do that because people, if people are organically searching, why would you pay to have them come to you? In fact, when you start paying for search, your organic goes down because some of those guys would have been there anyway, (laughs) but now they're clicking on the paid one rather than the free one. You do get to a point at some place where you say, okay, but wait a minute, I think I need to reach out to get leads. And I went through this in my agency where we uh, were approached by somebody who did lead generation work. They specialized in advertising agencies. It wasn't just fly by night. You know, they were serious. And I was able to check on them with a reference of somebody I knew well. And they had had, well, okay, results with them. But I went ahead and decided to work with them anyway. But the catch is it cost a lot of money. I think we were paying five grand a month and we had a minimum commitment of months. So we paid quite a bit of money to 
to work with these people. And it was really interesting because what I found is they struggled to understand our uniqueness well enough to find clients that would fit with us. And so there was a tendency on their half through their hard work, what they were finding were generic advertising clients, not clients that fit with what we did. And that was really tricky and it was disappointing. And net out, I think we got one or two leads out of them that were worth mm. following up and got a tiny amount of money. I think we might've spent 60,000 over a, a year and we might've gotten $5,000 worth of business out of it. So I think on a P&L approach, that's maybe not a really good way to look at business, but we, we did it to test because we had to figure out ways to get a more reliable flow of business coming in. It just didn't work. And I think it maybe that's why I get so cranky about being hit up on LinkedIn all the time with these lead generation things. As you note, if they're picking me out, they've got a really bad process for qualifying the leads they approach, but also they make it sound magical. And that's the thing that listeners have to watch out for is they're going to make it sound magical. Oh, just come pay us this money and we're going to, you know, and they, a lot of them will come in these days, I think with magic black boxes. Oh, well, you know, we have the widget and the widget's going to find you great leads. We are AI enabled now. Yeah. Oh, that's it. AI enabled. I forgot. So I think that as we've talked in other episodes, nothing replaces you understanding your value proposition and buying behavior. And what customers, I mean, like you posed in a couple of episodes ago, how do customers show up? What happens when, when they do? Now, agencies obviously are trying to sell. And I think their style of how they sell is also very important. We did a bit of a research a few years ago on what issues companies had with marketing agencies. And a couple of what you mentioned resonates with that. I remember one of them is that they either didn't understand the product or couldn't spin it or they didn't level with us what could or could not be done. Or, you know, we had leads, but they were not well qualified. That, you know, alignment with sales was an issue. They didn't look like they had the experience out in the field. They'd never sold themselves, for example. This is pretty important in some B2B environments where your audience really is your sales department at the end of the day. And if you don't have a feel for what they're going through, you're not going to be helpful. So I think understanding the sales cycle and the buying behavior and what the customer flow through that is, now we call that the funnel. We had a whole session about funnel. Even though you have a customer journey at any given time, you can take a snapshot yep. and see how likely they are, what actions they have taken that is consistent with the buying behavior that might improve the odds that they may actually buy from you. If you don't have that picture up front, it's really hard to have any program that will improve the conversion rate from one stage to the other. And then when you get to that point, SEO is just one item. So you have to come up with a marketing mix that you blend just so to optimize your cost per lead. Well, and you've got to figure out where you can get to these people. I mean, you mentioned PR. I think the truth is, if anybody approaches a listener with lead generation, you've got to first sit there and look across all your options for how you bring people to give you a call. Because there's a lot of ways that people can get brought to give you a call. We talked about with professional services, how important the referral is. And I know a lot of people want to do referral programs and things like that. I'm actually not a fan of referral programs, but if referrals are what, like, in other words, you do good business and therefore your clients say, hey, you ought to call 
you know, Shaheen, then you don't necessarily need a lead program or a lead program is going to be a hard one if referrals are the primary way that you get business. And that is your marketing mix. Referral is your mix. Yeah. And then you look for ways to maybe support referrals. For example, if you can get an article written about you that then a referral can say, yeah, call Shaheen. By the way, here's a great article about him. Right. That can make it stronger. So I think you, first of all, have to sit back and really look at the challenge. It's not just about throwing people into the funnel. Right. Because if bad people, you know, bad, I don't mean like bad people like uh, criminals, <laughs> um, but I mean bad people like they not likely to buy. <laughs> they aren't serious uh, potentials to buy right. for whatever reason. They're not worth spending your time on. Yeah. Well, the sales marketing alignment is a really big piece of this puzzle. And the quality of leads is the name of, you know, there, there are several items in there. One is the quality of the leads. One is who gets credit for what and how do you make sure that everybody's incented. One is that there's an impact on quota. If I go to the sales management and say, here's a bunch of leads and they represent $100 million worth of business, does that translate into increased quota for the sales guys who are going to dislike you because you just messed with their quota? And the other one is really lead flow. What happens with, with the lead nurturing? You know, What happens when the lead is kind of not qualified for sales, but also not quite ready to take any action with. So I think that sales marketing alignment is really a big piece and quality of the leads is probably the crux of the matter there. So the recommendation there usually is to work up front with sales to define what a qualified lead looks like. You cannot do that if you don't understand the buying behavior and whether the signals that you're getting from customers are the signals that are meaningful. Just because they downloaded the white paper, is it material? Is it useful? Is it, do you even know who they are? It could be a student doing research on your, you know, industry that downloaded a product. I had a friend who did telemarketing work for financial software. I think I mentioned this earlier on another podcast, but he did, um, you know, he did telemarketing sales work for a, a maker of financial software. And somebody came in and sold him this big lead program. They were going to find the people that had spent the most time on their website, had searched for them. They'd be highly qualified leads. So he started calling them back. And what he found out is the people who spent the most time on their website were trying to get smart enough about the program to go interview for a job. Right, exactly. They weren't anywhere near being a qualified lead. They were just people who were there. And a lot of behaviors that are automatically detected online are not behaviors that actually are meaningful. You, you, you're touching on it. And now one aspect is that if you're doing recruitment marketing for yourself, mm -hmm. and that's really what's causing people to be more informed. So maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe that, that, that is already providing value. But you just touched it is that what does your lead scoring look like? You have to look at the customer took this action. And as a result, they are now eligible for the next content, eligible for the next action, kind of like a frequent flyer program. I'll tell you the best lead programs I've worked with were those out of the direct response uh, fitness equipment business back 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So a company like a Bowflex, uh, for example, they had a system that was just brilliant because they would get, they would put out a, an infomercial or a short ad and say, call for more information. Those leads would all go into a database and then be aged 
right? So every lead you had a, what, what information did they get sent out? Did they reply to it? Are there steps along the way? And they had, would age and rank them into five or six categories of quality and do that by watching your ongoing behavior in response to things that you sent out to them. I think, and that's very different from this idea about, let's just watch what's going on on the web and rank people accordingly because right. you don't know what the purpose of that was. If you send somebody an email and they go to a website as a result, okay, that's significant. Mm-hmm. If they go to that website, who knows what happened? I think for like an immediate sale where you ship them straight to an e-commerce site, that might work. But lead nurturing, which is to, like you said, once they are in the tent, you shepherd their journey through the tent by recognizing what they need at what time and providing that for them in a way that is helpful to them. That is really a big part of lead scoring, but it really hinges on you being able to detect that they actually did that. So what is Mm -hmm. the quality of the data? What sort of software stack do you need in the back end to actually capture that data? Do you understand the meaning of the data? And as you blend the data together, do you create toxic assets or do you create really clean, meaningful pieces of wisdom, right? That, those are really hard. Should we take this opportunity now to wander a field and go talk about metrics online? Uh, <laughs> hopefully, we've offered some wisdom here about leads. But when you and I were talking earlier uh, this week, I expressed that frustration, which is both uh, Shaheen and I are grizzled enough to have been there when the first web guy said, the web is going to be the perfect utopia of measurement. Everything will be known. You will know everything about your customers. And I don't remember exactly how that got out there or whatever, but certainly by 2001 or two, that was the belief in the marketplace was that the web was a modern utopia of advertising. We won't go into the lie about how it was going to be uh, a utopia in the ads you got presented. I mean, it turned out to be the worst of the DR uh, direct response hacking kind of stuff, but We'll let that sit on the side. The metaverse is going to fix all of this now. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. That's right. But I think the thing was this metric promise. And as we, as I began to work with metrics online, what I found is each step, they became weaker and weaker and less useful and less useful. I did a campaign with a major Fortune 100 company, and I said, well, I want to know this stuff about the, uh, the leads that we get. And they said, okay, great. Well, we're tracking that through our website. We know everything because we're tracking on our website, except they reset their counters at midnight on the 1st uh, every month. I didn't know that. They didn't know that. All of a sudden, we're trying to count how many people responded to an ad. Just a simple thing. And the counters reset. What? 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 Why would you do that? You know, why would you not actually try to maintain this? Um, Well, they didn't really know because they actually didn't know that that was happening. So for all the hype about it, it turns out the seamy underside of the web is it's chaos down there in the counting of what happens in the track. Well, in general, counting things is very difficult, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially at scale. Don't tell kindergarten uh, teachers, but we know it is. Well, it's a good start to start in kindergarten. But <laughs> for example, a good example of that is that if you have a large company with like, let's say 30,000 employees or something, how many employees do you have? It changes mm-hmm. probably hourly. Mm-hmm. Because you've got that many around the globe and there's always somebody coming, somebody leaving, somebody on. So just kind of how do you count and do you even, you can't even detect it. So I think the reason why we keep coming to this marketing metric 
analysis is that counting is really, really difficult and you have to be conscious of it. And the software stack behind it that can detect it, you know, especially digital data, because they're so, so easy to instrument what you have visibility to, you don't even realize what you do not have visibility to, which is really why I keep talking about the lamppost. Now, again, if you're a really large company and you're putting millions of dollars behind this, you do have a shot at knowing everything. And some of these big extreme scale companies probably do. But even they now have the difficulty of the bias in their data and how to interpret that data. And, and the, I mean, every time you're served an ad that is completely useless is an indication of how hard that problem is. And Amazon, who has always been thought of as the people with the most data and making the best use of it, I have not gotten an ad from them for a book in uh, 20 years that was meaningful to me, uh, including the fact that every couple of years they send me an ad trying to sell me my book. You know, we discovered <laughs> right. this book. You're going to love it. Yeah, come on, guys. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's tough, especially with data in that you never know what you're missing. One of the kind of psychological challenges with data is it gives you this sense of presence. Oh, I've got this data. And we get really sucked into believing that means we have everything we need. But what we never know with data is what is it we're missing? For example, you know, I wrote a blog, a blog post a while back about retail. And, you know, they're going to put cameras in retail and they'd be able to track this person stopped and looked at this shelf. So that's really meaningful. And it was a whole thing about how we won't need focus groups and we won't need market research and all that stuff. Except let me ask you this. If somebody stops in a store at a shelf, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Could be nothing. Could be a lot. <laughs> Where they, Are they a designer in professional life and just looking at a cool package? Were they distracted by something there? Are they buying for a friend and not for themselves? Um, are they buying adult diapers because their parent, their you know, parent in a in a care home needs them? I mean, you can't make assumptions off of a mere act like stopping at a shelf. Well, you know, you remember my four things about data that is irrelevance, incompleteness, mm -hmm. inaccuracy, and irreproducibility. Mm -hmm. And those were my four I's against the four V's, you know, volume, value, velocity, right. uh, variety. And I think those four I's are really important, is that do you understand what the data means? Do you understand how it is and it is not relevant? Just because somebody presents you data with a label, you have to say, well, what does that label mean? Where did the data come from? And I see data scattered around social media all the time with people just taking it at, at face value. The other thing we run into is that data gives us implication that it actually was all known and counted. And you're right, counting is very difficult. It turns out there's a fair amount of data online that is not counted. So for example, a couple of years back, Facebook published this data for marketers that said, okay, if you use Facebook, here's how many teenagers you can reach in Australia. Well, it turned out <laughs> they right. reported a higher number of teenagers you could reach in Australia than our teenagers living in Australia. And they got challenged with this because we're all like, what the, I mean, where the, <laughs> speechless. And what came out is they said, oh, that's an estimated number. 
Now, I don't have a problem with them having to estimate some things. But, you know, that also is really concerning because where do you as an advertiser find out that the data they're offering you is estimated? Which leads me to one step further on my rant about this, which is I come from TV world. And in the TV world, we have independent sources of data. So if I want to find out how many people are watching a program, I go to Nielsen. They're an independent shop. They have a few compromises they have to make because they're, you know, they have to get good graces with the stations. But fundamentally, they're independent. And they'll criticize networks for things that are, you know, incorrect. There are independents who used to record TV. And then you would put a code into your ad and they would automatically track where it appeared. And you could use that to verify, you know, we have a station report that says it aired at 7.34 a.m., did it. And you could find out how accurate it was. Online, nothing. We got none of that online. I mean, bots, we know bots are a problem. So now there's, you know, there's people who run around and estimate how many Twitter users are bots. Um, yeah, the funny yeah. thing apparently is that the company that just did this and that validates Elon Musk's accusation that there's more bots on Twitter than Twitter acknowledges uh, also classifies Elon Musk's account as a bot or a like. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Can you prove he's not a robot? (laughs) I mean, in the long run, what should happen is, you know, the web, the online business needs the independent source like Nielsen. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago was how running surveys changes kind of opinions into facts by quantifying an opinion. And that comes across as a really trustable piece of information when in fact it really isn't. It's just, you know, you just took survey one is one, one is five, one is three, you average them out, you come up with some number that feels really exact and in fact it is not. So now you have to understand what that means. Now you have to understand what question was asked. Now you have to understand whether people who answered actually read the question. So we're going to have to keep coming back to this data metric issue because it is such a part and parcel problem in marketing in general and it's not going away. It's not. And we're getting more and more data about which we know less and less. I think that's really concerning to me because it becomes very easy for a company to become addicted to the data without ever realizing that the data doesn't tell them much. I think, you know, one of my concerns I've had all along with data is my early examples of it. We'd got some analysis of stuff back and it's like, okay, you have all this data. Here's our analysis And the analysis told us to do the opposite of what was the right thing to do. And, you know, I mean, I think what I worry about is that a lot of people are searching for smaller and smaller little things instead of significant advantages. Mm. What was that story you were saying about the 2% of the sales being? Oh, yeah. I'll leave company names out of this one. But I was working with a very large client with a very large budget. And they had a very large online service say, hey, we'll take a look at your data and tell you what advertising generated every click online. And they had they were spending like $130 million a year in media. You know, this is, and it was all driving clicks, so it was significant. And the company came back and they said, well, actually, um, we could only identify the source for 2% of the clicks. of the clicks, their analysis work couldn't identify what drove, you know, what was the causal thing 
that caused somebody to click. They couldn't identify it in the 98% of the data. Now, a good a good research person would say, therefore, we really can't say anything more. These guys said, but you want to know what we found in the 2% of the data? Yeah. <laughs> right. And they went off with a 20-page report trying to tell us what, you know, what was significant. And I'm just like, burn it. Burn the report. <laughs> Now, what I have observed along these lines is how people actually spend hours looking at data that is really just a small fraction, like you mentioned, or sometimes not even really meaningful, but because it is so intoxicating to just look at curves and data and try to make sense of, and then by the time you're you know, two hours into it, you forget your initial assumptions, that you came in this just to sort of get a flavor, not to walk away with conclusions. And in fact, you walk away with conclusions. So that's a problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, it reminds me a bit of, uh, you know, we went out did focus groups. We did four focus groups, got 32 people. And as we're coming back in a car, because we'd driven out there, the president of the company we'd done the work for turns to me and says, you know, I really want to total those up and do percentages on the 32. And I turned to him and said, Hank, if you do that, you're fired as a client. <laughs> because we talked to 32 people. You can't do that. But there's this drive to have data to manipulate data. My last thought here on that one is that I saw it with my clients who would often be massive advertisers. They would spend millions, I mean, tens of millions of dollars on general brand advertising, and they'd get back some Nielsen numbers for it, and their business was thriving. And then we would come in and do direct response television where we would count phone calls. They became so obsessed with counts of phone calls without looking at the bigger picture. And I kept having to say, look, for every one person that calls, you probably influenced 99 others. No, mm -hmm. no, no. Let's count phone calls. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like the mere presence of data distracted them from doing business. Yeah, that's definitely another complexity of the numbers because sometimes you look at, yeah, I mean, is the number more meaningful than we think or less meaningful than we think? And is it a proxy towards something else? And we don't really know how to manipulate this? Or is it like a proxy of something much bigger that's happening? Or do we assume it's a proxy without knowing it's a proxy? Right, yeah. right, right, right. Which I think is also one of the common errors. Yeah, good, good. So if you feel like it, we can leave with a recommendation. Are you in the mood to make I'm a recommendation? Yeah. All right. So I'll go first. My recommendation is that if you are doing demand gen, lead gen, my number one recommendation is understand the meaning of the data, establish a baseline, and chip away at improving that baseline. And that would serve you well. Your recommendation. My recommendation would be lead generation might well work for you, but don't get carried away by it. There's nothing, nothing can supplant really understanding how people get to you. And there is no magic way that that happens. You just have to fight. There's a lot of things you have to solve. You have to work on what level of PR are you doing? How many ways do people have it to get content that influences them? In what ways do they get to you? And then can you put leads on top of that, a lead generation effort on top of that? Okay. Well, then with that, we will conclude this episode. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next episode. Take care. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.